go to Psalm 1 and go to left in your Bible a couple of pages and you'll find Job 32. It might be a wonderful habit to get into, maybe the first Sunday of the month to take the, the bulletin home and over lunch or over dinner, talk about an aspect of it with your family. Those of you who are note takers, I'm going to pull an Alistair Begg. And we're just going to talk about two and not three points. Two points today. It was just too big. Too big of a, of a chunk. I have to tell you, uh, I'm excited to preach this sermon and excited to preach next week's sermon. I, not, I don't know if they're any good, but I'm just excited at, at, at the content of them uh, as we get into the, the majesty of God. Uh, it's been wonderful uh, and a privilege, and, and I know that you provide this privilege to me to be able to spend hours and hours and hours just thinking about, cogitating on, studying the Word of God, and I just want to thank you for that. I mentioned uh, J.B. Phillips last week in my sermon, and as a boy, if you remember, who left the faith because he couldn't trust, he couldn't believe in, he couldn't put his faith in uh, a God who had let his mother die of cancer. Well, here's the rest of the story. He came back to the Lord as a young man and became an Anglican pastor who went on to actually translate the whole New, New Testament from Greek into a modern English. And you can find his translation uh, where Bibles are sold. Uh, he also wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Has anyone read that book, Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips? Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. It's kind of a standard. And there he writes against the bad caricatures that many people have of God like the resident policeman, as he puts it, or the parental hangover, as he puts it, or the old doddering grandfather, among others. In other words, we all make God in our image in some way, shape, or form to make him comfortable, to make him palatable for us, and not to keep him where he really is, which is the Lord God Almighty. He writes this, Many men and women today are living without any faith at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or godless, but because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. He goes on to say, there are undoubtedly even professing Christians with childish concepts of God which could not stand up against the real winds of life for five minutes. In a way, that's a concept that we've been wrestling with in our whole time in the book of Job. A misconception of who God really is. That's 
That's some of what Job and his friends, his counselors, have been saying. They've been giving him bad counsel, and Job himself has been saying things that are uncharacteristic of God. Like he is capricious, arbitrary. Like he's unfair. Like he's silent. Like he doesn't care. Like he's not powerful enough to take care of Job and his circumstances. We all have these and many other misconceptions of God. I hope as we've gone through Job that some of them have have pierced your heart. And they need to be righted. These misconceptions of God need to be righted. They need to be corrected. They need to be adjusted. And beginning in chapter 32, they are. Enter Elihu. Look with me at Job chapter 32, starting in verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barhel, the Buzite, in the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, he burned with anger. Pause there. Basically, Job can be outlined in five big chunks. First two chapters where we see the, the Satan making the accusation against Job and his sufferings. And then in chapters 33 through 31, we have those three cycles of, of the three friends giving bad advice, some good but mostly bad, and Job answering that, chapters 3 through 31. Then we have a mysterious counselor come in for five chapters, 32 through 37. Then we have God's response in chapters 38 through 41. And then finally, Job's repentance and restoration. This morning, we're going to look at that fourth mysterious counselor, We've heard from Eliphaz the prosperous, from Bildad the brutal, from Zophar the zealous. Now we're going to hear from Elihu the forerunner. Elihu the forerunner. I named him that because I think he makes significant contributions to the book of Job. Now there might be some of you out there who have read some commentaries, and and rightly so, and I hope you do and continue to do that. But some of, the, some of the minds out there, and good minds they are, don't agree with this. There were those that would say that Elihu is just a young, arrogant, angry blowhard who doesn't really, really make any progress over the three friends' arguments. That he has nothing new to say, that he merely repeats and repeats what's already been said. But I, I see Elihu differently. I think Elihu is not without fault. He's not perfect. But he is gifted with wisdom. He's a young man who says many wise things. As we'll see, he actually answers Job, some of Job's complaints. 
The other three didn't. He actually leans in on those. And he's empathetic with Job's suffering. If you've read these chapters over beforehand, you, you get some of that. His friends progressively, the three friends progressively get kind of cold and, and hard-hearted towards Job. Elihu actually empathizes with him. I also see Elihu's anger as a righteous anger. Yeah, it's not perfect. None of our anger is. But I see his anger as, as, as a righteous anger. It says right here he's angry with his three friends. Why? Because although they, they proclaim Job guilty, they give no, in, no evidence of his guilt. So he's angry with them, and, and, and I think rightly so. He's angry with Job because he's been seeking to justify himself before God. If you've ever been in a counseling uh, session or somebody's opened their life to you and they're, they're giving their righteous answers, this, this is why I, what I do is right. You kind of get that feeling. And that's kind of what Job was doing. And he was sinking deeper and deeper into kind of a, a victim mentality. And so he's angry with Job. And finally, as we'll see, Elihu has a very high view of God. A very high view of God. So like John the Baptist, he kind of prepares the ground for us to hear from God, starting in chapter 38. And he does that in a couple of ways. First, Elihu prepares us to hear from God by insisting that God is not silent. He's always speaking. God isn't silent, Elihu is saying. He's always speaking. Look with me, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to chapter 33 in Job. And look with me at what Elihu says, starting in verse 12. He's speaking to Job, and, and we assume his three counselors are still there, and maybe other people, we're not sure. But he's definitely speaking to Job, and he says, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, although man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of night, when deep sleep falls on man while he slumbers on the bed, when he opens the ear, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that, were not, that uh, would not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man that he is right before him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from the pit, going, going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh of his youth and let him return to the days of his youth, youthful vigor. Elihu tells Job that he is wrong that God is silent. Job, throughout, is always saying, why aren't you talking, God? God, why aren't you talking? God, why, we don't know how long of a time this, this back and forth went with his three friends. But 
even if it's a relatively short period of time, when you're in that much pain and suffering, you want God to talk. If you've ever been there as a person, an hour can seem like a day, and a day can seem like a week when God is not seemingly answering your prayers. He says in verse 14, if you, can, if you look down there, that, listen, Job, God is always speaking. You're just not hearing it. He's always talking. Many times we simply don't perceive it. Hymn writer Frederick W. Faber, who wrote Faith of Our Fathers, said this, There's hardly ever a complete silence in our soul. God is whispering to us well nigh incessantly. Whenever the sounds of the world die out in the soul or sink too low, then we hear the whisperings of God. He is always whispering. Only we do not always hear because of the noise, the hurry, the distraction which life causes as it rushes on and on. How true. God is always talking to us. But we're not always perceiving it. Psalm 46.10 tells us to be still and know that I am God. In other words, slow down and listen. And that is what Elihu is telling Job. If you slow down a little, you might hear what God is saying. God is always whispering. He's always talking. He's always communicating. And if we're too self-absorbed or too busy, too self-absorbed or too busy, we don't hear it. So he uses different means, and we've talked about this before. And Elihu brings this up again in verses 19 through 22. He'll use the means of slowing you down to listen of pain and suffering. That's what he says. Look at verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones. God uses pain to communicate to us, brothers and sisters. It's a hard truth. We, we don't want that. But he uses that means to communicate to us. This is a huge lesson that we can walk away from Job knowing. A huge lesson. Sometimes God uses the means of pain and suffering to get our attention. You all know the C.S. Lewis, famous C.S. Lewis quote on this. But I want to read you a little bit preceding that famous quote. He writes this in The Problem of Pain. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as everything seems okay. Error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. Listen to that again. The deeper they are, the deeper the sin, the deeper the idolatry, the deeper they are, their victim suspects suspects their existence less. He goes on to say, they are masked evil. Pain, on the other hand, is unmasked, unmistakable. Every man knows that something is wrong when he or she is hurt. We can rest contentedly in our sins for long periods of time, he writes. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures 
He speaks to us in our consciences and he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. That's the famous part. Brothers and sisters, pain and suffering are sometimes the only way that God can get your attention. Doesn't mean that every pain and suffering means that. But there is a category for that in Scripture. And the deeper the sin, the deeper the idolatry, the more blind, the more prone you are to be blind to it. And that's counterintuitive. We think if something is big, if something, if some sin is rooted really deep in us, that, that it would be very evident. But it's strange how our blindness works. And many times, the deeper the sin, the deeper the idolatry, the more blind we are to it. Thus, sin can remain lodged deep in our lives for long periods of time, Lewis writes. I think that's true. But God loves us so much that he will not allow that to remain. He won't. And sometimes, he'll use pain, discomfort, dis-ease, some type of suffering to take the, 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 the blinders off so you can have peripheral vision on your, on your sin. And that's why many times in Scripture, God says to us, don't despise the hard things. He says it in Hebrews 12, don't despise God's discipline. He's doing a good thing. Don't, says it in Proverbs 3, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Because he's trying to help you. He's trying to help you. You know, I mean, I, because I'm watching The Hobbit with my son, these things are just right there on my fingertips. But, you know, when Gandalf is, is telling Bilbo in the beginning of Lord of the Rings to, to leave the ring, right? Leave the ring for Frodo. And, and Bilbo doesn't want to, and he starts to hold the ring, and, and he calls it his precious, and that gets Gandalf's attention. And, and he says, no, it's mine. Bilbo says, no, it's mine. I'm not going to leave it. And, and Gandalf uses his gravitas. He, he, if you see the movie, you, you see that everything gets dark behind him. And he says this line, which is great. Do not take me for a conjurer of, deep, of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. And then everything comes back. The darkness goes away and the softness comes back into Gandalf's face. And he says, I'm trying to help you. And in a way, that's an image of God when we're in that crucible. You know, and we, we shake our fist at him and tell him he's silent and why don't you help me in this? If you were a loving God, you'd do this. You know, God will at times become great and mighty for a moment to get our attention and then he'll become caring and loving. And he wants you to know that he's, he's trying to help you. He's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to rob you of something. He's trying to help you. That's what God is always saying in our pain. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. He wants you to look at your unforgiving heart, maybe, 
He wants you to look at your idolatry of pleasure. Your idolatry of comfort. Your idolatry of, of respect. Your idolatry of reputation. Your idolatry of family. Your idolatry of money. Your idolatry of work. He wants you to see something that you don't see. He wants you to see and repent of your sins so that it doesn't poison your life, so that it doesn't poison your relationships, so that it doesn't poison your soul. And he'll use pain and suffering to shout into your life. A missionary in Pakistan went through a particularly difficult time when her six-month-old baby died. And an old woman came to her and said, A tragedy like this is similar to being plunged into boiling water. If you're an egg, your affliction will make you hard-boiled and unresponsive. But if you're a potato, you will emerge soft and pliable. The missionary said that in the years following, she would often find herself praying, Lord, make me a potato. (laughs) That's a good prayer. All of us will go through pain and suffering. All of us. Some more than others. Some more frequently than others. Some have long periods between it. But I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, you will go through various pain and suffering in this life. What a wonderful prayer. And remember that he's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you. According to Elihu, God is not silent in a second way. So he's not silent in our pain. But if you look at verse 14 and 15 following, it says, In a dream, in a vision one night, when deep sleep falls upon men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. God is always speaking. And sometimes he speaks through dreams and visions. That's how he spoke in the Old Covenant. We read that. If you're doing the Bible in a year like I am, you've already come across several examples of God speaking to Abraham through dreams and visions. He warned Abimelech not to touch Abraham's wife Sarah through a dream, if you remember. He told Jacob that someday he would be a highly respected man. How? Through a dream. He spoke to Samuel through visions. God warned Joseph to take the baby Jesus. How did he warn him to get out of Dodge? Through a dream. God was constantly speaking to his people through dreams and visions. So how are we to approach this text here? Are we to then... Pastor, are you saying keep a notebook beside my bed? Because, boy, I don't want to miss anything God says. I had a dream this past week uh, about taking Jack to college. And uh, it was a very complex dream. You know how dreams seem like very long, but really they're probably like four seconds. This was a very long and, and convoluted dream, but basically it boiled down to uh, it was uh, an anxiety dream 
of taking Jack to college because we took him to college and we're getting him installed in his room. And outside the window on the roof, uh, the, the kids are dancing and drinking and, and I'm looking for Jack's schedule, class schedule, and there's no class schedule. So, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, he, this is going to be terrible. Partying and, and no studying, you know? What should I do with that dream? Is, is God telling me, don't take Jack to college? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would feed my idolatry of family very well, yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think dreams might help us understand our own fears and anxieties. But God is not talking to us, to me, through a dream. He's not talking to you through a dream anymore. Hebrews 1 opens by saying, In the past, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets through many ways and various methods. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the word of God incarnate. One of the major differences between the Old and New Covenant, and if you read Hebrews, you realize that, that it says it's a new and better covenant. One of the ways it's better, although we don't think it's better, but one of the ways it's better is that he speaks to us through his word. John 1.1 1, 1 says that Jesus was the word and he dwelt with God and then he became flesh. In that incarnation, and this is, this, is, this is astounding to me, that incarnation is actually hinted at right here in our text. Look with me at 33, chapter 33, verses 23 through 30. Here we have an angel, a messenger, who is a unique messenger, one in a thousand, it says in verse 23. Sent to declare what is right and to show mercy, verses 24 through 25. So that we're not repaid what we deserve, so that we're not treated as our sins deserve, we might say. Because we are rescued from the grave. We're redeemed, verse 28 says. We're redeemed through a ransom payment, verse 24 says. And if we pray to him and confess our sin, verses 26 and through 27, our body becomes new again. Verse 30, lighted with the light of life. In modern parlance, we might say born again. This is probably the clearest and most complete gospel in the book of Job, perhaps in the Old Testament. I mean, it, for me, it rivals right there with, with Isaiah 53. If you put on the New Testament lenses, you cannot help but see the gospel right there. You cannot read it without seeing Jesus' salvific work. And because Jesus came and accomplished our salvation, and he created a new and better covenant, in that new covenant, things are different. In the New Covenant, things are different than they were in the Old Covenant. And one of the things that are different is that your desires become different. You begin to desire what is right and good from the heart. Not a law putting it on, but from your heart actually changes. You think differently than you did before. Others first, me last. 
that's one of the changes that happens in your life, brothers and sisters. As you, as you give your life to Christ progressively and, and, you, and you put your faith in him and you, he matures you. That actually happens. Your life is different. You start wanting to serve instead of being served. That's a change that actually happens in your life. You live sacrificially, not for, so that Blake can get the glory, but so that God can get the glory. This happens in the life of a regenerate believer. And what also happens is that God speaks to you differently. Previously, in dreams, in visions, in voices, angelic appearances in the Old Covenant, now, normatively and primarily through the Word of God. Normatively and primarily through the Word of God. I know it's, it's much more exciting and we see a lot of things on TV and hear about it on radio other than the Word of God. And that, that piques our interest. Well, that's exciting. But normatively, primarily through the Word of God. I want to give you three quick, super quick imperatives that, that, that follow if you believe that. The first one is... You need to read your word daily. You need to be in the word. You want to hear God's voice clearly, more clearly than you are are now. Spend a year or two just daily in the word of God. And you'll be astonished at how clear things become. Things are fuzzy when you're outside the word of God. Mm, what should I do? What is this? I, what, what's the wisdom in this area? I don't know. I don't know. You're pulled. You're, you're constantly at forks in the road. But you, you spend some time in the Word of God consistently over time. You'll be shocked at how clear things become. So be in the Word daily. Hide it diligently in your heart. Be in it daily and, and proactively hide God's Word in your heart. Colossians 3.16 tells us to let the word of the God dwell in you richly. That's why we have a memory verse here at, at this church. That's why that's, that's part of the discipline, the spiritual discipline of believers in this church. You want to know what God is saying. You want to be guided well. Hide God's word in your heart. So that it's right there. So that the Holy Spirit, not that you can access it, but that the Holy Spirit can use that to speak to you. Not that he's impotent without it, but he uses that to speak to you. Read it daily, hide it diligently, and study it dutifully. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best. Those in my preaching cohort, we watched a video, you know, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a man, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We looked at that verse last last month. And there's a sense in which it's like, put your arm around, do your best, right? Do your best to preach the word of God well. You can do it. And then he said, there's a sense in this in which he takes your shoulders and goes, do your best. And it's the same sense as here. Do your best. 
do your best. Don't just pass over scriptures you don't understand and go, I haven't understood that for years. I'm not going to understand it for years. Do your best. Pause. Take some time so you can correctly handle the word of God. Brothers and sisters, the way to begin to hear the word of God more clearly is to simply participate in these disciplines. It's not rocket science. There's no silver bullet. There's no pill you can take. It's just doing these over time. But there's a second way that Elihu speaks as the forerunner and prepares for God to speak. And that is by telling Job that his God is way too small. Job, your God is way too small. If you walk into the Smithsonian National Museum of Art, American Art, in Washington, D.C., you'll immediately come upon a display. Just inside the door is an arrangement called the Throne of the Third Heaven. The Throne of the Third Heaven. There you'll see some 180 pieces in the arrangement, from tables to chairs to small decorative items, all pulled together by James Hampton, a quiet, virtually unknown janitor in Washington, D.C. Hampton simply wanted to depict God's throne room. This extraordinary collection was found in his garage after he died in 1964. No one knew he was working on it for the past 20 years. All these pieces were made from cast-off items, old furniture, aluminum foil, bottles, cigarette boxes, used light bulbs, cardboard, construction paper, desk blotters, sheets of plastic, all precariously held together by glue and tape and tacks and pins. On a bulletin board in the garage, he had copied Proverbs 29.18, Where there is no vision, the people perish. James Hampton believed people needed a vision of God's incredible glory. So he set out single-handedly to give them one. Brothers and sisters, this is what Elihu's fourth speech in chapters 36 and 37 are all about. He's trying to give us a bigger vision of God. So like John the Baptist, he's preparing the way for God to speak. Look with me at how he does this. Take your Bibles and turn to chapter 36. And I'm just going to read little snippets to give us an idea of what, how Elihu is talking to Job and giving him a bigger vision. Look at 36 verse 2. Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said on God's behalf. Verse 5, drop down to verse 5. God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. Drop down to chapter, uh, verse 22. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him? Or who has said to him, you have done wrong? Drop down to verse 26. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. 
Then if you just look at chapter 37, the whole chapter describes and proclaims God's greatness. Look with me at starting in verse 14. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous work of God. Do you not know God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of the clouds to shine? Do you not know the balances of the clouds and the wondrous work of him who is perfect in knowledge? Drop down to verse 23. I'm going to read it in the message version. I'm sorry. Mighty God, far beyond our reach, unsurpassable in power and justice. It's unthinkable that he'd treat anyone unfairly. So bow to him in deep reverence, one and all. If you're wise, you'll most certainly worship him. Elihu is pounding over and over and over the greatness, the majesty, the grandness of God. Consider this. All your words. Consider this first. Consider this before you say anything, Job. As a mature Christian, you have to have three high views. As a mature Christian, you have to have three high views. You have to have a high view of the law. In other words, take the law seriously. Not in a legalistic way. But read the law knowing that you're reading who God is and what he desires for you. Second high view. You have to have a high view of sin. You have to have a high view of the law, which leads to a high view of sin. In other words, take sin seriously. If you read the law seriously, you'll know that God takes sin seriously. Romans... 3 verse 20 says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, what? We become conscious of sin. As you read the imperatives, you should have some ahas. Oh my goodness. I had one just this week. Thank you, Lord. Ouch, first. Thank you, Lord. The law was given not to save us, but to give us these aha moments. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, get serious. Don't live with it. The third high view that you have to have. And if you're going to have any real traction on the first two, you have to have this one. You have to have a high view of God. You have to have a high view of God. A serious understanding as to who God is. That he is the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, as the Apostles' Creed says. You have to begin to understand that he is mighty God far beyond our reach, as it says here. That the heavens is his throne. This is one of my favorite just thought experiments is to sit back and think of Isaiah 66 1 the, the universe is his throne and the earth is his footstool gosh that gives me perspective uh, Habakkuk that he stands and the earth shakes that he looks and nations tremble he doesn't do anything but stand there and things happen or the memory verse that he holds everything together 
We could go on and on, but the Bible is always saying, and Elihu is pushing home, whatever you think of God, it's too small. Whatever you think of God, it's way too small. And for your whole life, you should be expanding your who God is. There's a name for God that we seldom ever use. That name is Jealous. We don't use that name for God very often. Sounds strange. When someone is called jealous, when we use that word, it's certainly not uh, saying something nice about the person. It's usually picking out a character flaw. Exodus 34.14 says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. How can something that we consider bad be considered something so very good of God. Back in the 1960s, there was a popular TV western called The Guns of Will Sonnet. Walter Brennan played the title role, a scripture-quoting man with a reputation of unparalleled gunfighting ability. He was the best. As the series progressed, viewers saw the wise old man avoid more gunfights than he got into with the simple, truthful statement about his abilities. He would say, about his gunfighting abilities, no brag, just fact. No brag, just fact. God is the only one worthy of all of our affections and adoration. No brag, just fact. The complete worthiness of the ultimate praise we give him alone should be given to God and no one else. No brag, just fact. He's God Almighty. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the God above all others, above all everything. Enter God, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens my counsel? Without words of knowledge. That's how he's going to begin. Our God is way too small. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, apply it as there was truth said to people's hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.